and welcome into another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, he is back. He is Amarillo by morning and Detroit by closing time. He is Cody Stavenhagen. Cody, good to have you back. Hey, thanks, Karen. Good to be back as well. Seems like it's been way too long since I've done a podcast. Forgot how this works. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was not the easiest thing in the world to do it without you, your keen source of knowledge and insight and also, without your writing as a guide, because I don't subscribe to any other, you know, outlets, so I was, uh, I, I felt kind of naked the past couple of weeks. I'm not going to lie, doing this without you, but we're glad to have you back. Um, we had just kind of let it be that you had to tend to an, a family emergency down in Amarillo. Um, is there something you're comfortable sharing with, uh, with an update on that? Yeah, just kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of it. You know, I got a call um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, basically just saying my dad was, was getting rushed to an urgent care and, and was then later getting rushed to the hospital with, um, you know, some kind of problem in his in his brain and definitely didn't know a lot, but got the sense it was pretty serious. Um, you know, I'm the, I'm the oldest son and uh, my dad, you know, kind of lives alone. So it's one of those things where, Kind of had to jump on a plane and, and go. And luckily, by the time I landed, he was, you know, he was in the hospital. He was in the ER, but he was um, stable. Uh, seems like he's had a, a seizure and or stroke. We're, we're still trying to get him to a better neurologist to maybe get some more answers. Um, you know, so he's in the hospital for four or five days and, and needed a lot of help around the house the first couple of days he was home. The good news is he's, he's recovering really well. He's... Um, uh, really on a good path right now and, and hopefully it stays that way but yeah that's why I was gone for about 10 days just helping him out um, you know getting him out of the hospital making sure uh, he was taken care of back home so far things are good and it's 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 good to be back so um, yeah thank you for everyone who reached out with thoughts or prayers or, or kind words definitely heard from a lot of people and that that meant a lot to me. My dad, of course, has been a, a guest on this podcast before, so I'm sure it meant a lot to him too. Um, and yeah, good to be back in the swing of things now that that uh, hopefully the worst of that is in the past. And you might actually be coming up to see you in Michigan, right? Well, we'll see. We'll see. We're looking at the idea of getting into a neurologist at the University of Michigan Medical Center. Uh, so if anyone out there has any ties in the neuro world, particularly at U of M, let me know. We're, uh, just trying to make sure he gets some good care and, and Michigan's obviously one of the best clinics, uh, in the world. So, um, still trying to figure out, there's a ton to figure out on the medical side of things and calling doctors and insurance and, and all that fun stuff. But yeah, that's a possibility. Well, uh, one of those things where perspective is, uh, is given because, Oh, let's talk about two Tigers draft picks right after we discuss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that. But Suddenly the Tigers bullpen doesn't seem so important, you know. Well, I'll say this. It, you did pick a heck of a week to come back. There wasn't a shortage of material. Um, and I guess we'll start with the draft picks. You got to see up close and personal and, and talk to the uh, – the, I guess not the top two type draft picks because it's high Madden, but Jackson Job and Isaac Pacheco came through Detroit, and that was your first time talking to them face to face. Both high school kids, so that's uh, I think that's kind of interesting. I, I'm more curious, how did they 
handled themselves being 18 year olds in a major league ballpark, especially like, you know, Joe being the number one pick, the number three overall pick. And then Pacheco, like, you know, I think I can't imagine it's kind of crazy to uh, take batting practice in a major league ballpark, you know? So how did, how did all that kind of look to you? Yeah, I thought both both kids were really poised. I mean, that was the thing that had stood out to me. I already had that impression with Jackson Job a little bit, but he, um, you know, definitely kind of lived up to that billing in person. Kid seemed um, confident but not cocky. You know, he seemed professional. He seemed like he belonged in that kind of setting. You know, just sitting in the Comerica Park dugout, he was chatting it up with. AJ Hinch and with Chris Fetter for a while, talked with reporters, and I just thought he handled himself really well. Something about his demeanor was impressive to me. Um, similar thoughts with Pacheco. He's a little more of a, um, you know, not a long-winded guy. The answers in his interviews were pretty short and concise, but he had some confidence. He had some poise. He seemed pretty dang mature for an 18-year-old. He was. He seemed eager to jump in the batter's box and take some swings in BP right alongside, you know, some major league players and, and didn't seem phased by that at all. Again, carried himself well. It, it seemed like, I mean, no way to know for sure, but it seemed like two kids who you might want representing your franchise. I'm sure that's a lot to take in being 18, being you just graduated high school, then you got drafted, then you spent two months in Florida, and now here you are at a major league ballpark. You have all this new money in your bank account. I'm sure it's been a whirlwind, mostly in a good way, but a whirlwind for those two kids. It would be easy to be overwhelmed or to not know how to handle yourself in that kind of environment. I feel like when I was 18, I probably would have been scared out of my mind for something like that. These kids did not seem scared out of their minds, but they also seemed... uh, like they kind of knew their place and and had some humility to them and were taking in the the good of the experience. You know, I knew you at 18 years old and uh you would have acted like you belong there. Uh you <laughs> okay. you you were just a consummate ball player look at 18 years old. You had the the ball cap <laughs> and the the Oakleys upside down on the bill. This is true. Uh, that was You've always been well dressed, but now you dress like an adult. Then you you still dress like a ball player. So I think you would have acted like you belonged. <laughs> Maybe I should bring back the ball player look. You know. Hey, why not? Summertime in Detroit. I, I think it's always in style. Um, so with Pacheco, did he look all of six four two twenty five? Is he that impressive in person? That's another thing. I saw Isaac Pacheco in the dugout walking down, and I was like. Who is this? I was like, I was like, is this uh, is that like, no, that's not Derek Holland. Is that was there someone else coming back from the IL that has been gone so long that I like forgot they were on the roster because he looked like a man. He did not look eighteen years old, and then it kind of set in. Oh, that's Pacheco. And so yeah, every bit of six four two twenty five. Kid was built, uh, has the look of a guy who's going to have a lot of power from the left-handed side of the batter's box. Definitely a pretty imposing physical presence, and you can see why scouts liked that about him. That brings the question, can he stay at shortstop, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I would say he looks really big for a shortstop. I like big shortstops, but... Uh, kind of the frame of a guy you would you would see more at third base in the long run. Well, I mean, did he he took some ground balls? Did he at least look like he had the feet? 
Yeah, I, I thought he moved around pretty well. I mean, it was just kind of basic soft grounders, so I wouldn't read too much into it. He definitely looked athletic, looked like he could move a little bit. Um, it wasn't like watching Ryan Kreidler where you're like, oh, this kid's a shortstop, but it also wasn't like watching <laughs> our boy Willie Castro where it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's not a shortstop. So um, pretty good feat. We'll see. Uh, I, you know, I'd guess probably third base or somewhere else is in his future. But big guy looks to be still athletic despite that size. Really simple swing. Uh, which I like. I'd seen it on video. In person, I thought his, something about his hand path was um, a little bit of a hitch in that hand path. But again, he's, he's taken swings in BP and Comerica Park for the first time. I really would not read too deeply into anything based on that, that really tiny evaluation size. Yeah, I mean, it's more about the experience. Although, should we read into Jackson Job's uh, first pitch? <laughs> well, let me tell you, hopefully the next pitch he throws off the mound at Comerica Park will be better. Uh, clearly someone was like, Jackson, don't throw this ball hard at all. We don't need you blowing out your arm, throwing out the first pitch. But I was like, you know, if you get drafted number three overall, I kind of think you should throw a strike. I kind of think you should throw a strike. He lobbed it up there like 45 miles an hour, which is fine, whatever. But it was really high. It was, I mean, it was really high. It was better than Cade Cunningham's first pitch, but not by much. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I assume the next time he throws off that mound, it will be much better. But uh, yeah, he left that one way high. So the, the young pitching prospects and now no longer in prospect status for the Tigers, uh, my Scooble and Manning. Scooble and, and Mize kind of have similar demeanors, but it does kind of branch at a certain point. And then, of course, Manning is, as we've talked about, sort of more of the jokester or whatever, whatever word you want to use. Uh, where in the spectrum of personalities based on limited interaction do you think Job fits? Yeah, you have to see these guys in a competitive setting before you can fully know. I mean, Mize and Scooble, you sense their seriousness right off the bat. Manning, I think we've learned a lot more about him seeing him in a competitive setting. You know, he can kind of joke around in spring training, but then he's a bulldog when he gets on the mound and is more prone to displaying his emotions on the mound or throwing his glove in the dugout or whatever, which again, guy's a competitor. I don't necessarily fault anyone for that, but Matt Manning can wear his emotions on his sleeve more than you might think just, you know, based on the first time I ever talked to him. I think Job's probably somewhere in between that. He has kind of this intellect that almost reminds me of Mize a little bit, but he seems a little looser. He doesn't seem quite as professorial as a Casey Mize or as just, you know, I always think of AJ Hinch talking about Scooble in spring training. And he, he was like, yeah, I had to remind him we're on the same team. Like I'm sitting here, you know, talking with this guy about our plans for the year and he's just locked in. Like we're competing with each other. You know, I didn't think Joe brought quite that demeanor, but, um, seems like he's probably a pretty even keel kid again the son of a pro golfer which i think says something you unless you're john daly you have to be pretty chill and level-headed to play a sport as mentally taxing as golf so i think job was kind of raised around that environment you can already see it in his personality a little bit so i'm going to say this knowing that there's no physical proof that this is a good notion but I want to get out ahead of it. I want to get an early nickname nomination uh -oh. for Jackson uh -oh. Job. And it's the magician. 
Now, he was drafted third overall because of his ability to spin the ball. It's like his spin rates are rank tops in Major League Baseball if he were a Major League pitcher right now. You know, that was the, the selling point. Um, so he can do some magical things with the ball in theory. And then also it's an Arrested Development reference. Joe Gob Bluth, if you're a fan of the show, uh, was a magician as well. So I, I just wanted to put that out there. I wanted to get ahead of it. I didn't want anyone to take it away from me. I know it's way too early, but it was in my head basically since they drafted him. And I didn't want someone to claim something that I thought of first. So I just wanted to put it out there for the digital, digital sphere to know that I called it first. Nickname, Jackson Job. The magician. Real quick, for anyone who wants to know the difference between the good, kind folks of West Texas and the uh, the city folk down in the Metroplex, when I think of Job, I think of the Old Testament. When Kieran thinks of Job, <laughs> he thinks of Arrested Development. <laughs> well, he is from the Bible Belt, so maybe it works. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> um. I, I, two interesting points from your story, which if you're an athletic subscriber, Cody details all this stuff uh, heavily. Two things. One with Job that really stood out to me was AJ telling him, your stuff is good enough to be here now. And if you're 18 years old and all of a sudden you're, he's not going to be the face of the franchise, but if you're a number three overall pick, you're at least one of the guys that they're looking to be a face of the franchise eventually, if all things work out. Um, and then to have like your future boss tell you, like, in theory, you're good enough to do it, what you do now at this level, when we all know it's going to be a bit just because that's how these things work. Um, that had to be a huge confidence boost. So uh, did AJ talk to you guys a little bit about Job or what he liked? Did he share anything else specifically? Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, he talked about them both being from the Oklahoma City area and, you know, some of the ties they, they have in common there. I think they visited about Oklahoma for a little bit. So shout out Oklahoma. It's becoming a prerequisite. If you're going to be associated with the Tigers, you know, you, you have to have some kind of tie to Oklahoma. Cover apparently. the team or be drafted high or be the manager. You got to gotta have some Oklahoma clearly. connections. Um, anyway, yeah, so he talked about that. You know, he talked about the stuff and, and visiting with uh, Chris Fetter a little bit. But I think it was for AJ too, just a kind of get to know you thing. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was pretty intentional the way Hinch said, yeah, your stuff can play at this level right now. A way to make sure you the kid knows you have some faith in him, make sure he um, approaches next season with that kind of confidence that, hey, I should be in the major leagues. I can be in the major leagues. It's just one sentence, but that's the kind of sentence that coming from a manager can absolutely mean a lot, um, especially the first time you meet the kid when you've never actually seen him throw. I think it was smart by A.J. Hinch to toss in that little comment. I also thought it was really interesting that A.J. claims to have uh, probably a better, not better scouting report, but maybe a little bit more insight, institutional knowledge about Pacheco, uh, saying that, you know, I don't know, I feel like it'd be kind of, kind of uh, unusual for like the second round pick to your phone to be blowing up if you're the manager because it, you know the kid happens to be from you know where you reside or whatever yeah so AJ still lives in the Houston area which is uh you know Pacheco's also kind of down in that neck of the woods doesn't surprise me I don't know why 
I, I think maybe it's related to the internet or the perfect game videos that are out there, these kids now, but Pacheco was a name I was familiar with. I didn't actually know that much about him as a player until leading up to draft time. But I had heard the name for some reason. I can't even tell you why, but I had. And I think that shows he was. He was one of the top two or three, probably two up behind Brady House, prep bats in this draft class. So, you know, if you're in Houston and you're tied into the baseball scene, it doesn't surprise me at all that Pacheco was on A.J. Hinch's radar. Hinch used the word famous. He said Pacheco's pretty famous down where I'm from. And, uh, you know, I think that's true with some of these prep athletes. And I think Pacheco had been kind of on this draft prospect radar for a few years now, kind of unlike Job, who was a really promising player but blew up his senior year. People have known about Pacheco pretty much his entire high school career. Uh, for what it's worth, he hit two twenty six um, in some uh, in some rookie ball. The forty three strikeouts are obviously something that uh, that you know uh, catches the eye. Strikeouts were high, uh, but he hit three hundred in I think his last eleven games. So you could already see a little bit of progress. Only one home run. I mean, again, short sample size, but a kid who's who's uh, built with some power. Maybe it would would want uh, some more balls leaving the yard, but I think he had a decent amount of doubles. So again, you know, first taste of pro ball. He made some progress toward the end of the season. I think he chalked that up as a W. He is going to have to cut down on the strikeouts. Everyone knew that coming in, and, and we're already seeing that in pro baseball a little bit. So that will be his big test as a hitter going forward. Just because we have a uh, we are a comprehensive podcast here at Turn the Corner, I went and just looked up some basic stats for Marcelo Meyer. Uh, ooh, 275 ooh. average, three home runs, 27 strikeouts, 15 walks, and OPS of 817. So that's Meyer. Not bad. Not bad. Fits the Meyer profile. Yeah, so uh, Tigers fans, at least the ones that are in-depth enough to really study the draft and all that stuff, are always going to put Meyer and Job against each other. So every now and then, I think we're just going to do a Meyer update. You know, just... I wonder if, I wonder if like, Al Avila's friends, like, ever just text him stats of like players he didn't draft or anything like you know just giving him a hard time because we don't we don't think about like the human side of it. i wonder if people inside the organization are able to joke about it like that well let me tell you if you were a gm and you passed on you know player x and he shot up to the major leagues you know real i i'd probably occasionally text you about it <laughs> you know it's you know that's part of it that's part of it but obviously the potential is there in job uh so, moving on to a guy who's going to have a role in how those guys develop is uh, Ryan Garko, uh, a familiar-ish name uh, for those who have been, you know, following baseball the past several years. Uh, kind of caught me off guard how much I remembered him, to be honest, because you don't yeah. you don't usually get that with those kind of roles, you know. So uh, it, he seems to be a guy who's very diverse in his background. And that was probably one of the things that impressed me the most is that he had an array of experiences with uh, well-run organizations. And if you're trying to inject new life into yours, I mean, that's kind of 101 of what you need to do is you need to figure out the, the teams, the organizations that are doing it correct and 
poach some guys and hope that they can kind of implement it into into your system. And he has that in spades. So his resume impresses me. Um, you guys got to talk to him via Zoom. Uh, overall, what what'd you kind of make of that hire? And also the timing I, I thought was interesting. It's like, wasted no time. This is, this is our guy. Let's get him. Yeah, I think that's kind of how contracts work this time of year is when contracts kind of either have to be renewed or not renewed so you you saw some movement in the play, in the Tigers player development system they let go of 11 coaches a lot of you know Mark Johnson at Erie Willie Blair and Bill Springman assistants down at West Michigan AJ Sager who'd been a pitching instructor in the organization for a long time you saw that turnover happen you saw him go and get Garco Theoretically, so now they'll be ready to make hires when other guys <clears throat> become available here in the next couple of weeks. Again, some of you guys understand this, some some might not. Sometimes it's like, okay, VP of player development, like snooze, who cares? Tell me, these are important hires. This is the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that absolutely shapes the framework of this organization. The best teams in baseball have robust player development systems and in the year 2021, they have very smart people and a, a um, full cupboard of staff members kind of, you know, orchestrating things. This is where the Tigers, we all know they've kind of lagged behind. They've made some steps to catch up. Hiring Garko, it seems like it's kind of giving him the keys and saying, okay, you can now be the architect of building a modern player development system. They've alluded to some more changes and hires on the way. We'll see exactly what that looks like. But wouldn't shock me if you see some job titles where you're kind of like, what? You know, as I mentioned in my story, the Cubs have a, a director of pitch design and, you know, the uh, Dodgers have like the director of the strong mind program and stuff that might seem crazy, but speaks to the level of detail and knowledge that teams are, are um, shaping their infrastructure with. So Garco... Interesting hire um, on Zoom. I thought it was. I, I thought two things stood out. Again, managed at Double A Tulsa in sixteen and seventeen. So he he checks the Oklahoma tie shout, requirement. Yeah, shout out! Shout out Tulsa, baby! Shout out Tulsa! And uh, he and Alavila speak a lot of like. Have you ever heard Alavila <laughs> speak? He can kind of ramble a little bit. Well, oh this no, Zoom, that's not a good endorsement. <laughs> this <laughs> for many this, people. <laughs> this Zoom with Avila and Garco was like thirty-five minutes. You asked them a question, they would just talk, and it was like, oh my gosh, I appreciate the uh, the good answers and and the uh, long-winded answers, but a lot of rambling between those two guys. Overall, though, you look at Garco on paper. I think it's a really impressive resume. I think it's the type of resume you would want in a hire of of this ilk. Guy played at Stanford, played in the big leagues, coached at Stanford, uh, was in the Dodgers system where he overlapped when Chris Fetter was a minor league pitching coordinator. Garko was the manager in AA Tulsa, so they overlapped. Um, Garko talked a lot about what he learned from Andrew Friedman, Farhan Zidi, Gabe Kapler, some of these big names on, in kind of the player development realm of baseball. Anyone who follows it closely knows those are the guys who have really kind of written the blueprint for how player development is done. So Garko got to work in that system, even which Chris Fetter attributes to where he really learned um, about the modern game, about analytics, about technology, and about how to actually trickle that down and affect players and help them improve 
And then he won coach at Pacific University. So he's been a college head coach. So I think he has the leadership skills that come from such a role. And the college game continues to mirror the major league game more than ever in terms of the way player development is done. Garko said the role that's most similar to a college head coach, probably a VP of player development. And I think he's right. And then he had coached uh, on the Angels staff in kind of a hybrid front office field role. Got to work under Joe Madden and uh, Billy Epler and, and some other guys there in the Angels system. I think his resume is really good. Uh, clearly a smart guy, Stanford educated. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see what he actually brings into the table and what kind of plans are put in motion the rest of this offseason. So when I read... I want to parse this by saying I get it. Like if someone were to ask you, what's it like covering the Detroit Tigers? You would answer in sort of like a generalizing, you know, type way. And it wouldn't necessarily be all that in depth or perhaps interesting uh, because that's just the nature of how these conversations go. So I get that being said, I hope we can very soon get to a point where we don't talk about analytics in the way that it currently has to be constructed in a sentence. So Mm -hmm. the whole, like, analytics isn't a scary word. It's 2021. Can we just, like, (laughs) I remember I said this when, you know, with something that Al said when the uh, front office changes were announced or whatever. Um, And I get why he did it, and I get why Garko did it. But, like, analytics isn't a scary word. Can we just move on from that? No one is... Like, Moneyball's an old movie at this point, and it was a movie about something that had happened, like, 10 years prior. <laughs> like Yeah, no, real quick, because someone commented this on my story. This is the reason these guys still still frame it this way, is a lot of the, the casual fan or even some of the old school people in the game don't get, like, Moneyball... There's a reason Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball. It was an economics book. The A's exploited market inefficiencies. Mostly they valued on base percentage. And analytics is, that's not what analytics even is anymore. Analytics now is really talking about uh, spin rate, spin axis, pitch design, looking at the data you get from this technology and helping players improve yeah, front offices run, you know, algorithms and create all these systems to identify um, acquisitions that can help them out. But like when Ryan Garko is talking about analytics, he's not talking so much about one base percentage. He's talking about using blast motion sensors to uh, measure guys' bat speed or putting guys on biomechanic plates to see, you know, how their weight shifts and their swing and really trying to build athletes from the ground up using this technology and data so in a way like i don't even know if analytics is the right word um to discuss it it, it has it's become this overarching thing and it again it's hard to summarize on a podcast if you want to really understand what we're talking about here what ryan garko was talking about i would go read the book the mvp machine also future value uh two books that really take you inside what's going on in baseball these days and kind of what people actually mean when we use this big word analytics it's kind of like in journalism five ten years ago people would talk about digital it's like what does that even what does that even mean that's that's what analytics has has yeah just by the way for anyone who still may be scared by the word analytics um 
analytics is basically everything, every piece of information that gets given to yeah. you yeah. is analytics. If you're watching a football game and you see, you know, Michigan State minus four, it's not an arbitrary number. An analytic machine came up with that spread. <laughs> <laughs> so so literally everything is analytics. So we can get past that. But I did think this quote was interesting and and uh, from, from Garko when he said that 98% of the time, like the anal- what the analytics is telling you um, is also essentially the same thing that the eyes are telling you. I have never heard someone go that strong on this I, uh, I, eyeball test versus like analytics thing. I've never heard anybody go that strong. Clearly, Ryan Garko has never watched Harold Castro play. <laughs> <laughs> I uh I, I just I thought that I thought that was interesting cuz cuz also if that were like if that in a vacuum was like basically 100% true um there would be no pushback and we wouldn't have to lazily say like analytics like it'd be like oh yeah it's just a number that tells me that this guy does that like it there yeah. wouldn't be any like verses on that if uh if that was the case yeah, I I think ninety eight percent is a little bit of an exaggeration. I think there are too many players still on this Tigers roster: Victor <laughs> Reyes, Harold Castro, even uh, Willie Castro a little bit, who run counter to that. I'd say like seventy five percent of the time. But there are still guys out there that you look and you're like, oh, this guy's a good ball player, and then the analytics say, oh, he's a terrible fielder, or the analytic like Harold Castro again, guy can hit the ball. Analytics tell you he's not actually valuable to your team. Well, he's been pretty valuable to the Tigers this year, even though you can't quantify it. I'm a guy who loves analytics, and I don't know that Harold Castro should be like a long-term piece, but I can no longer deny that Harold Castro has been a valuable member of this team, largely because he's A.J. Hinch has used him in a way that allows him to kind of highlight his strengths, and you're not he's not in the lineup every day. You don't need him to slug or to walk or whatever. Uh, not to get off on a Harold Castro tangent, but um, I don't know about ninety-eight percent of the time. Yeah, and by the way, and this, and I actually did not want to spend all that much time on this, but like the whole, the whole like every rule that as a baseball fan, people like our generation older than us, every like kind of rule of thumb came because of a statistic, like the lefty versus lefty, you know, thing and all that stuff. Like that's you put the best power hitter three and four, like that. That was like essentially early versions, primitive versions of analytics. It wasn't like an accident yeah. that Babe Ruth batted third. Like <laughs> they didn't just say, oh, "Why don't we bat him seventh? You know, like like there's a reason for this. So like it, I don't know. It's just Babe Ruth would probably bat second today, maybe fourth, well, depending on the line. You and I are big proponents of making the number two guy your uh, your best overall hitter, and I'd like to see that happen more often, but. Maybe with a more complete lineup, maybe with a guy whose initials are C and C, you could do that. Maybe. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe. Um, uh, l- one last little point about the the organization, and you touched on it with like the Dodgers and the and the Cubs and all these like jobs that just kind of seem like made up. I don't know if people really appreciate how much like it takes a village to have just a good baseball team. And it probably takes a Metroplex to build a consistent winner. Like, there's a lot that goes into it. And that's not to excuse, like, the slow roller process of this rebuild, but it is not something 
for long-term sustainability. It's not necessarily something that happens overnight, and there's a lot of there's a lot of avenues you got to reach into in order to get the desired result. And and if you were behind the eight ball already, like 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 what was where was Al supposed to turn for support on how to do that when he took over? You know, like it like it, these are just realities. There's a lot that goes into it, and so just generally speaking, I don't know if people appreciate just how many. Uh, cooks are in the kitchen in order to have a consistently successful baseball team. I think it's an interesting balance. Like how do you have the right personnel around without having too many cooks in the kitchen? Uh, I kind of look at the Cubs directory. I'm like, is this too many voices? Uh, Because I think that probably can be a thing. You can probably try to overdo it. Has the Cubs player development system actually been good the last, you know, two, three, four years? Well, no, not really. Uh, that's why they're having to, to restructure all of this. But yeah, a lot of it's a process. Alavila keeps mentioning um, Jay Sartori, the new assistant GM, director of analytics, gave like this presentation where he kind of lays out the next wave of uh, what things are going to look like in the organization. And I, I wish I knew what was in this presentation because Jay Sartori used to work at Apple. My understanding is Apple knew what the current iPhone was going to look like like 10 years ago, if not longer. You know, they're thinking way ahead and you kind of have to roll things out in phases. And for Apple, some of that's just to get us to buy more stuff. But uh, for a baseball team, it's like, okay, you can't just snap your fingers and okay, we hired 50 new people and we implemented all these new programs. There's a budget you have to follow. You have to kind of slowly introduce things. Yeah, it sucks that the Tigers weren't... um, won this 10 years ago, but they're, they are on it now. And it, it is kind of a gradual transformation that now does seem to be getting some real momentum and really seeming to have more and more of the right people in place to execute, um, whatever these, these grand plans may be. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, um, cause obviously as a, as a sports junkie, I read all the time about, um, about bad owners, um, guys that just worried about the money and didn't didn't care about uh, didn't care about really investing in, in the product on the field, um, and every organization is riddled with examples of that. But uh, you're not going to be able to say if this rebuild fails, you're not going to be able to say it was for a lack of trying. You're not going to be able to say it was for a lack of looking at being innovative and I don't want to say progressive because it just doesn't feel like the right term to me but progressive is another way of saying it like not being stubborn like being open to new ideas uh it's not going to be for a lack of trying on that front and in the moment as we're still waiting to see if it will play out I mean at least you can at least you can hang your hat uh head hell uh hang your head high a lot of H's, uh, on that front. Like, at least the team is putting through effort and it's being, the resources are there for um, for them to do these things. Like I said, it's a lot of people, it's a lot of titles, it's, you know, the salary uh, structure of the organization goes up whenever you gotta do this stuff. Uh, speaking of, you did hear from Al and Chris, kind of, I guess, uh, <laughs> on Friday, and I only say that is because there weren't a whole lot of beat writers that tweeted out uh, Chris statements. I guess he was uh, pretty purse with his words, but uh, 
any, was there anything worth noting from this? Because we've actually heard from them more this year than, uh, than I guess, typically. Yeah, Chris Illich talked three times this year. Normally it's once in spring training, once at the end of the year. He made the, the well-timed mid-season appearance where he talked about spending in free agency, and so that was really the, the icing on the cake for Chris this year. So it was kind of interesting when, when Chris sat down this week. It was like, okay, are we going to... Are we going to continue this thing where Chris Illich tells us some good stuff? Because that normally doesn't happen. And it was kind of back to normal, <laughs> if not worse. There was just... Regression and, to the mean. Yeah. To be fair, like, it was kind of like, what do you ask this guy? Like, because the stuff we really want to know, he can't quite tell us. He can't really say, well, our budget is going to be X amount of dollars and we want to sign this guy and this guy and this guy. And we're going to do, like... As the owner of a major league team, for strategic reasons, he just can't quite do that. And legal so a lot reasons. Of the, like and, yeah, and, and legal Yeah, that too. Um, so a lot of the questions you were asked just like, okay, you know, what are your plans for this offseason? He didn't say anything new. He did seem to not be quite as um, gung-ho about, like, going out and spending. I don't know if there was anything to that or not. I really wouldn't read too much into it. I think he was uh, – uh, just trying to not drum up too much interest. I thought it was interesting. He deferred to Al a little bit. He was like, "Well, that's going to be up to Al." And then someone was like, "Well, you're the you know you're the guy who writes the checks, right?" And he was like, "Well, yes, I am. But uh, as I've assured you, <laughs> Al is going to have all the resources necessary to build a winner." And it was you know, uh, yeah, wasn't quite Steinbrenner and Billy Martin, but I guess no, that's <laughs> yeah, if only right. Um, so, yeah, the reason you didn't hear a lot for, of what Chris Illich said is that he just didn't say anything remotely new or really remotely interesting. One tidbit I will give to you podcast listeners. I asked Chris Illich if there were any uh, major changes or upgrades coming to Comerica Park. I asked him this just to see if he would tip his hand because several little birdies have told me to expect some news, some changes with Comerica Park coming this offseason. I don't necessarily know how big or, or I have an idea what we might be talking about. Uh, so if you hear an announcement this offseason, just know you heard it here first. Chris, of course, did not really tip his hand at all, other than he did acknowledge that, you know, the team has some ideas in the work. He kind of hinted that, yeah, they're, they're talking about some stuff. So I would expect some upgrades or some changes uh, this offseason to Comerica Park. As far as Al... Or, um, you know, I don't know that there was a ton new from Al either, other than he talked about, you know, Matthew Boyd, the catching situation, the pitching situation a little bit. I think he'll go more in depth once the season is actually over. So the Tigers aren't going to build a green monster in left field. Hey, nothing's off the table anymore, baby. This is an open-minded, <laughs> progressive organization, you know. <laughs> I don't I don't think they'll build a green monster, no. No. Could you move those walls well, uh, in a little bit? Uh, uh, maybe. That'd be, make some people happy. A shout out to the innovator of that, Juan Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah. Uh. yeah. Juan Gonzalez <laughs> might just be coming back in style. We, we will see. <laughs> well, speaking of Boyd, uh, one of the weirder, not weird is not the right word, but it was like a good news, but also kind of <sighs> news this week. Where he's gonna he's gonna be in my neck of the woods, uh, having surgery, not Tommy John, so that's the good news. But literally everything else up in the air. 
uh, it seems, with him. Um, the, the contract situation, uh, which uh, we should probably remind people what, what those stipulations are. And then just like how can you build your pitching rotation in the offseason around a guy that, quote, or the phrase that was put out there was, expect him to pitch at some point next season. Uh, that's very vague and on purpose because you just never know. But I mean, that's 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 a real challenge. It's it's murky. Good news, you don't have to have Tommy John, especially he's such a great guy. But not necessarily uh, ringing the bells of good news either. I think a common theme of this podcast is everything people tell the media is just very vague. You know, which I don't like. I would like to be able to give you guys more concrete answers. It's kind of hard when Chris Illich and Alavila and Matthew Boyd just uh, get a lot of vague information because people don't want to make promises and. Yeah, with like uh, with Matthew, you don't know how quick he's going to be back because everyone can recover and return from injuries differently. He's having surgery on his left flexor tendon. Average recovery is thought to be about nine months. So then, okay, let's say he's healthy in nine months. How long of a rehab assignment does he need? How long until he's actually ready to pitch in major league games? That timeline can vary. Again, we've we've alluded to it, but. It makes an already complicated discussion even more complicated because Boyd's entering his final year of arbitration. He makes $6.5 million. Generally, guys get small bumps in arbitration, so he could make six point eight in excess of $7 million. Are the Tigers going to tender him that contract? We've talked about it. Tough decision. I like Matthew Boyd as a pitcher more than a lot of people. Um, I think he has really good stuff. Uh, we all know he's a class act. He's a great guy to have around in the clubhouse. But when you're trying to build a winner, when you're trying to build a playoff contender, when you are up operating under a budget and you have a lot of needs, are you going to pay $7 million for a guy who isn't going to be ready to pitch on opening day? It'd be pretty cold to non-tender Matthew Boyd because he got hurt. But sometimes pro sports is a very cold business. I don't know the answer to that. Al said there could be a deal to be done, but he didn't want to make a 100% commitment. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that he even said there could be a deal to be done. That kind of gave me the sense that, okay, the Tigers do want to bring Boyd back. I don't know if that's true or not. Matthew basically said, I'm going to plan on being a Tiger until something changes, which is the mindset you have to have if you're Matthew Boyd. Talking to Matthew this week, he again continued to project very Matthew Boyd-esque positivity and self-belief. I've never seen a pitcher scheduled for major surgery seem so happy. You know, I think he was relieved that it wasn't Tommy John, and he's like, yeah, we're going to fix my arm. I'm going to be back. I'm going to be better than ever. Everything's going to be great, which is very Matthew Boyd. Maybe only Matthew Boyd would react to news like that. Well, I'll tell you what. He, for a million reasons, uh, is a guy that you – want to see be successful you want to see him do well you want him as part of your organization i know he's married but it's like you know the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry you know like it <laughs> and uh then i look at like you know 194 era for the first seven starts and it's like ah, there's just so many reasons why i would like to see him return but the reality of the situation is a lot darker than that, unfortunately, which you just laid out. Um, I had said on one of the one of my solo spots that you know I just generally speaking wanted him back. Uh, 
I don't get hung up too much. I know every team has like a salary budget and all that stuff, but I don't get hung up too much on some of these like not lower salaries, but you know what I mean, like, you know, non Miguel Cabrera contracts per se when there's no salary cap. So like I think like if it was football or base or basketball, like those kind of stipulations I'd probably have a harder stance on, but Tigers aren't touching luxury tax and to me, he's worth keeping around, even if it might be murky, or at least kind of give him his shot post-injury, if that makes sense. I don't, but but it, it's hard either way. Yeah, I wish his, his, if his salary were hanging around 3 or $4 million, I think it'd be an easy, let's see how he recovers. And then you can bring in the argument, well, what's three extra million really going to hurt you in the long run when you're a you know, billion-dollar enterprise or whatever? There's that argument to be made. There's also the argument, well, you need a shortstop. You need at least one starting pitcher, probably two starting pitchers. You probably need a catcher. Uh, you want a piece or two in the bullpen. You might probably bring in some other utility infield type guys, maybe on minor league deals, whatever. But you have a lot of needs if you're the Tigers. I still think they should get a right-handed outfield bat. I don't, I don't even know that that's the top of their priority list. And so then when you start crunching the numbers, it's like, all right, right now, pre-free agency, Matthew Boyd is the second highest paid player on the Detroit Tigers. Matthew Boyd has had a, uh, an ERA above 5.3 since June of 2019. Matthew Boyd is not going to be ready to pitch opening day. So are we going to continue to pay this guy? Or are we going to go get two established starting pitchers who are going to be healthy and who perhaps could be even better than Matthew Boyd? Tough decision. And then again, Matthew Boyd throws a changeup now that he didn't even have in 2019. That has made him uh, very good, you know, at the start of this year. Uh, also, is you know, you talk about numbers and what do they align with what you see. The guy was striking out 11 hitters per nine innings in 19. Well, this year he's striking out seven hitters per nine innings. Big difference there. Big difference there. He doesn't get quite the swing and miss with the slider anymore. So I think some of it comes down to how much do you really believe is in there? How much do Alavila and probably more importantly, AJ Hinch and Chris Fetter think they can get out of Matthew Boyd? That probably ends up becoming the determining factor. All right. Um, I think we can go do our uh, AJ Hinch suggestion boxes. Um, I have one that we haven't discussed yet and... I'm curious, and I'm giving you reins here to just tell me that's stupid. Like, no, 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 no. And I and oh, I like it. I it's like not, it already. It's not like wholly thought out. It was just kind of an idea that popped in my head, and I thought, you know what? Why don't we just kind of hash it out? See if see if it's dumb. If it's dumb, tell me it's dumb. I can take it. I'm a big boy. Should there be some experimentation of Robbie Grossman at first base? Because, as you said, they should, could sign an outfielder next year. Obviously, you have Badu, Hill um, in the mix as well. And you would have to, at this point, expect Riley Green to come up, uh, break the break with the team next year. Or if not, really close. Torkelson is another guy that will be in that consideration, but he'll also be a rookie and you're not going to want to as A.J. Hinch would say, 
pen him in for 162 games. Um, and Miguel Cabrera, you would have to anticipate, will probably play first base less just because he's a year older. Um, and you you really want to have Jonathan Scope play second base. So I was thinking, who else on the team maybe could get a shot at first base that you would still want in the lineup? And, you know, in theory would be able to, you know, perform well. I thought, well, maybe Robbie Grossman. You know, what's he like? He's going to turn 33 this year, I believe. Uh, yeah, next And, year. you know, the outfield's going to be a lot more crowded. Not necessarily with people as stable as him. But it's not like you can put Eric Haas at first base because you're going to be so thin at catcher. Um, and I thought, maybe Robbie, at, you know, is left-handed. That's something. You know, maybe, maybe that's something there. Maybe that's like a possibility because you know is it as crazy as Jonathan Scope at first base at this time last year when we were talking about it right so that right. that's sort of my my AJ Hinch suggestion box is like could we see some Robbie Grossman first base potential Kieran I was really hoping to be like oh that this is so dumb this is so stupid I was just hoping to really rip you I like this idea okay I think the number one pushback on it would be like well, Robbie Grossman's a, a pretty good outfielder. He's an adequate outfielder. Yes. Tigers have had trouble with outfield defense the past couple years. Why would you move a good outfielder to first? I don't think you can make that argument when we have gone an entire season with a gold glove finalist second baseman playing first base. Again, baffles me that the Tigers have had scope at first as much as they have, and it's worked out, and they, you know, they're gonna win close to 80 games and and it's worked out. But if you can play Scope at first base, like you pointed out, you can definitely play Grossman at first base. Um, maybe that opens more of an alley to add a right-handed bat to your outfield or opens more room for the Derek Hill, Daz Cameron, Victor Reyes to be more in the mix a little bit next year. Um, I like the idea because I think you face... I, like, I like the idea of Grossman still plays in the corner outfield and he plays first on occasion. Or maybe you look at Haas doing that next year, too. You, you face a tricky situation. My sense is the Tigers, subject to change, but the Tigers probably see Torkelson coming up in June, maybe late May. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with service time. We're going to have a new CBA, but I think they want him to get some more AAA at-bats, really make sure... Uh, everything is ready. His plate approach is really refined next year. So then you face the question, how do we bridge this gap at first base for the first month or two of the season? Do you bring in a Renato Nunez on a minor league deal? Do you continue to have scope play there? If so, who plays second? What if you did kind of a hybrid of Miggy and Grossman and maybe even Haas and that just bridges you until Torkelson is ready to play first base and then Grossman can still play first on occasion if you know, if you need him to, if you need to give a guy a breath to DH. I like it. I think Grossman has, I can't think of a reason why he couldn't play first base. This gets my stamp of approval. I like it. My AJ Hinge suggestion box. I didn't have one because uh, I forgot how the podcast works. I haven't done one in three weeks. So <laughs> I'm, th I'm thinking off the top of my head. Let's also go with Robbie Grossman. How about if you're the manager, you go up to Aladila and you say, let's give Robbie Grossman another year on his contract. Right now, let's just say we're going to give you, we'll raise you 
7.5 million, you know, for, you know, your third year, we'll pay you 7.5 million. He's getting 5 mil a year this year and next year on a two-year contract. Uh, guy's a really productive player. He seems to have the approach of a player who will continue to perform fairly well as he ages and that he walks a lot. Also, he's hit 20 homers and stole a career high 18 bases at age 32. So uh, I'm not too worried about his age, you know, just yet. He doesn't show any signs of slowing down. He, he tends to be a guy who stays pretty healthy. Um, he's just such a productive player. Still, you're, you know, he's cost effective. He's talked about wanting to be in Detroit. This is still the first time he's ever really been able to be an established part of a team. If I'm Grossman's agent, I'm saying, yeah, we could test the market. We could try to get you a little more. But at age 34, when you're a free agent, is another team really going to give you that much? How about we give Robbie Grossman a third year on this contract? Uh, AJ loves Grossman. The organization seems to love Grossman. I don't think it would at all be a bad idea. I'm just looking up to see who his agent is. Uh, LSW Baseball, so not a Boris client. That was really the only <laughs> yeah, thing. Of, yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> not a Boris client, so it's, it's conceivable. But yeah, and sort of this this things I was saying about Matthew Boyd um, could be said about Robbie Grossman in a lot of ways. Obviously, he hasn't been with the team uh, near as long, but um, guy that everyone seems to like. I really like the anecdote and your little story about him reluctantly doing the bow and arrow. Um, around the bases and had a career year and again if he does to kind of blend our suggestions together if you you know if he can play some first base he's more versatile there's more ways that he can move around uh, or be in the lineup I should say and that's obviously just like Jonathan Scope showed this year that's obviously a uh, a team first thing to do and you need guys like that in the locker room to kind of set the example. And I just, you know, next year we're going to have to talk about, like, should you trade Robbie Grossman for a bullpen arm? Right, and right. that would kind of eliminate, not eliminate because it never, you know, that you never say never, but that would more or less quell uh, any Jonathan Scope trade deadline talk for the Tigers. All right, Robbie Grossman. Yeah, I I, Grossman. I, I think that's a good idea because, in theory, you're going to be contending next year. You don't want to be trading a bat, but you kind of still have to develop or sign another guy in this outfield. Let's say Riley Green plays a lot of center field next year. I think he can handle it. I think you still eventually want him to move to a corner. If you, if you get another year of Grossman, that kind of buys you a year to either develop a center fielder, whether it's Daz Cameron or Derek Hill or, you know, there are a couple of people out there who still like Parker Meadows <laughs> or to trade for a center fielder or to go sign a center fielder. Basically in 2020, what, three, four, you can bump Riley Green to right or left field, go get yourself like a real bona fide center fielder. And I, I think that just gives you more time to construct your outfield without losing anything because Robbie Grossman is a productive player. So speaking of Parker Meadows lovers, uh, Keith Law, your colleague at the uh, at the Athletic, did his like prospect uh, of the year, you know, little story, um, and he gave Riley Green a shout out, and uh, and he this is he's a guy that's been, 
and I'm not trying to be overly critical of Keith. I'm just trying to summarize. He's the guy that's probably been less in uh, less likely to hype Green than some others, and um, I thought this was as nice of as anything he said about Green. He said, uh, obviously, he's been raking this year in the minors, and uh, he's played the majority. I'm quoting now. He's played the majority of his games in center field where he's looked better than I ever would have expected. A better defender will probably push him to a corner in time, but he won't have to move there through any failings of his own. Oh, that's like what I just said. Good job, Keith. (laughs) So I thought that was good. He also, forever it's worth, everyone is goo-goo over Bobby uh, Bobby Wood Jr. for good reason. Not 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 a good, good not ball not ball. a hater of wit at all. Local kid, uh, actually, one of my high school coaches was one of his select coaches. Um, but uh, Riley Green's three months younger for him, that's worth. So everyone kind of looks at you know Bobby Wood as the kid, and we don't really talk about it as much with Green. But he's actually younger than Wit. So those are some pretty nice words from uh, from from your colleague over there about. Yeah, I think if you want to know. You know, if you don't believe Riley Green is for real, look no further than the fact. Even Keith Law likes him. Keith Law does not tend to like Tigers prospects. (laughs) Um, uh, But Keith Law is hyping up Riley Green, so I think that tells you he's for real. I think that's another seal of approval that kind of tells you why the Tigers like the idea of Riley Green being on their opening day roster. Yeah, and I I have no issues with him in center field as of now. Um, Like I said... I don't think he's an elite center fielder. I think he's better suited for a corner, but he can hold it down. He can hold it down. Yeah, you can you can get away with it. But also, you know me, love me some Derek Hill. So you know Derek Hill in Derek center, Hill. And Riley in a corner, and Badoo. Derek Hill needs to play in like a hazmat <laughs> suit or like a bubble or something for. Man, you know, some people just they only know they only know one speed, man. I mean that's that's you know you take the good with the bad. I mean it's. A little bit healthier of a year than uh, than I guess he's had in past years. So at least there's that for him. <laughs> Three IL <laughs> stints and still as healthy well, as no, year of his, his nothing, uh, nothing that ended his season in a major way. So you t- again, you got to take the victories where they are, man. You got to take the doves where you can get them. And this time he didn't even get hurt because you jinxed him. So. No, I wasn't even. I wasn't even watching the game. I was at home, like uh, worrying about my dad. I had nothing to do with this one. Blameless. You got anything? Uh, got anything uh, coming up this week? Oh man, the year's over, so that means a lot of storylines wrapping up. There's going to be plenty to talk about. Um, talked to Miguel Cabrera on what was it Friday? They had Miggy night. Yeah, how was that? By the way. You know what? It was, it was really good. It was really good. I think, no, to make a joke, like, the Tigers gave Miguel all these presents. They gave him, like, the framed bat and ball used to hit 500, and they gave him, like, a 500 club, like, artistic rendering, and they gave him a trophy that said 500, and I was like, man, if I'm Miggy, I think I'm going to announce that I'm retiring <laughs> after next year so that I get presents at every road trip I go on, like David Ortiz and yeah, David Rivera. Like, Rivera, yeah, like I like don't drag it out, like cash it in and get presents <laughs> everywhere you go. Wouldn't that be fun? Uh, but it was really good. I thought Al Avila actually gave uh, talk about how he can be long winded. I thought he gave a really good speech. He talked um, kind of about 
the Marlins finding Miguel and how the Tigers traded for Miguel. I thought Al did a very good job speaking. Jim Leland talked. And it was a very nice and fitting ceremony. I, I think Miguel was even getting a little bit emotional at times. His wife and kids were there with him. Uh, I thought it was very well done. And so we'll have another story on Miguel coming up, kind of wrapping up his year, looking a little deeper into what next year might look like for him. Hoping to do something on Akil Badu, a little more reflection on uh, his rookie season. You know, probably some stuff on Mize and Scooble. End of the year stories like that. And might be a couple weeks from now, but we will see if the Tigers let me speak to one Chris Fetter. I don't know if it's going to happen, but wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Shout out Tigers PR. Shout out AJ. Yeah, and you know he has a uh, evergreen invitation to come on this podcast. Hey, the off season gonna have some free time. You guys should come on the pod. Come on the pod this off season. Na- name your uh, name your time and your day. Oh, we, we can make yeah. it happen. Uh, real quick on that Miggy thing, the the moment he had with Willie Horton was pretty cool. That was. Uh, that, that is true. That was yeah. that was another yeah, example Willie, of what yeah. I call the beauty of baseball. Is you have like a team legend who's like a team like a legend but he's not like remotely like a hall of fame player and he like the hall of famer from like a way different generation like was just so enthused to see him and all that stuff and the reality is a lot of guys from that era are no longer with us so anytime we can get another glimpse of willie horton uh is a pretty cool moment one of those days you wish al Kaline could have been around for that one you know uh obviously al and and miggy were plenty close and, and had plenty of great moments together would would have been nice to have the greatest tigers hitter you know there to kind of pass the torch or, or to you know unveil the the bat or whatever to the the best tigers hitter of this generation as well yeah absolutely so uh look forward to those stories and you know the next couple of weeks of our podcast especially right as the season officially ends there'll be a lot of the recapping and um and projecting and you know just kind of summarizing everything this year because over 162 games sometimes things get lost like that Matthew Boyd ERA through seven starts so that'll be a lot of what we do and we'll come up with some other fun stuff but uh Cody glad to have you back uh this was a blast I don't know if it's just because you know first time in a while this was uh one of my favorites it was just good to be back in the back into the routine um so Please, everybody, if you haven't already, subscribe on Apple and Spotify. You can follow Cody on Twitter at Cody Stavenhagen. I am at Kieran underscore Steckley. Our podcast page is at Turn Corner Pod. So for Cody Stavenhagen, it feels good to say that again. I am Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening.